The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As we've been announcing, we're uh, going to center our teaching curriculum around this Bible project. Uh, the Bible Project is a ministry founded by Tim Mackey and John Collins. And Tim Mackey is a uh, teaching pastor and a seminary professor. He actually has a PhD in Semitic languages and biblical studies. John Collins specializes in digital media and marketing. And so they've really uh, put together their skills to produce these really amazing videos. Uh, the Bible Project creates these short animated videos that trace the major themes found in Scripture and show how they point to Jesus. Many uh, Christians really don't know uh, how to make sense of really big portions of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, they're really hard to understand. And so these videos do a really great job of showing how all of these different parts of the Bible kind of come together to tell a single story about God's redeeming work. And as they say on their own website, many people have misunderstood the Bible as a collection of inspirational quotes or of a divine instruction manual dropped from heaven. Most of us gravitate towards sections we enjoy while avoiding parts that are confusing or even disturbing. And that's what I really like about the Bible project is it, it doesn't try to dodge the more difficult passages in the Bible, but it really tries to say, what is the whole story that scripture is trying to tell us? Okay. Uh, for the coming months, we have divided our community groups into smaller pods of four, and we'll be using the Bible project videos as a launching point into the exploration of these different biblical themes. And so if you aren't part of a community group yet, I would urge you right away to please talk with Pastor Peter, even after the end of this service, about seeing if you could get placed into one of these groups. And so each Sunday, I will be preaching on the theme that was discussed in small group that previous week. Okay, And even if you're not able to take part in our community groups during the fall and winter, um, I would still urge you to watch these Bible Project videos uh, before Sunday so that you're at least introduced to the theme before you hear the sermon. And then, truthfully, I think these videos are actually worth watching repeatedly, multiple times, because there's just so much deep theology packed in each one of these videos that it's really hard to even follow it. And they're just like five to six minutes long. But, I, you know, like this Tree of Life one, I've actually watched at least half a dozen times. Uh, as I've been preparing this message, okay? Um, and so Pastor Peter has already sent out the email with a link to all of the Bible Project uh, Church at Home resources and videos. And so, uh, again, if you haven't gotten that or you're not on our mailing list, uh, please see Pastor Peter and we'll be sure to get you connected to those resources for Bible Project, okay? Last thing I want to say about all of this is that our youth group, Catalyst is also walking through these Bible Project lessons. And so if you have a child that's in youth group, uh, I would really urge you to try to find moments in the week where you can talk with your child about what you are learning together about these themes that are found uh, in Scripture. Okay? With that, let me open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into today's lesson. Father, we do pray for these fall and winter months as the uh, pandemic continues um, in, in our country, at least, it really seems unabated. And so we 
pray, Father God, for your covering protection over us and our nation. Uh, and we pray for our spiritual health during these uh, isolating months when it becomes harder for us to be with one another in person. And so we pray that through your spirit that you would um, give life to us, spiritual life, that would um, overflow into uh, spiritual growth and service and worship and all the fruit of a life that's been transformed alive and at work in us. So open our eyes to understand the meaning of this tree of life as we come to you in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're kicking off the Bible Project series with this exploration of the tree of life. I just out of curiosity, how many of you watch the tree of life video? Can I see your hands? Oh, okay. That's actually encouraging. Maybe about 70% of you have watched it. <coughs> Sorry. Throat's a little dry. I feel like every time anyone coughs, you got to explain it to the people, right? <clears throat> it's the unforgivable sin. <clears throat> um, you might think that the tree of life shows up only in the creation story in, in Genesis. But surprisingly, it pops up again and again through the pages of the Bible. And as the video showed, this tree of life is part of actually a larger theme that runs through the entire Bible story. We're going to touch on the theme a bit today. Uh, the creation story itself focuses so much on the tree of knowledge of good and evil that it's easy to forget that there were actually two trees in the middle of the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's absolutely critical to understand the relationship between these two trees. And that's really what's going to be the focus of my sermon today. So first, I want to take a closer look at the tree of life. Uh, and then secondly, we'll see its relationship to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I want to begin with this question. Were humans created by God to be inherently immortal beings? Okay, let me ask that again. Were humans created by God to be inherently immortal? In other words, by our very design, were we created to live forever? And there is a debate about this within the church, but I, I would actually argue we were not. We were not. I don't think so. In the creation story, we're told that man was created from the dust. And in just about every other instance that this fact is pointed out in the rest of the Bible... The emphasis is almost always on humanity's mortality. The fact that we're all going to die one day. Genesis 3 verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. The apostle Paul makes this claim referring to Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter, 3, uh, chapters, uh, chapter 6 uh, verse 16. He says this about Jesus. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. Okay? Now, although we may not be inherently immortal, in the garden, God provided a tree of life so that people could eat it of its fruit and live forever. Genesis 1.29, after Adam and Eve had sinned, uh, or actually this before, it's, before they had sinned, it says this, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. So right there, by, the Bible clearly says, Every tree in this garden you can eat from. Now the only one that came with a prohibition was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what that means was that they were actually permitted to eat from the tree of life. So in other words, although humans weren't created immortal, God intended to give us the gift of immortality by eating from this tree of life. That's why later when Adam and Eve sinned, God says in Genesis 3, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So that's the picture of the tree of life is humanity eating the fruit of that tree in the garden with God, and thereby experiencing eternal life. That brings us to the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, verse 15 to 17. The Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. And with this second tree, the idea of choice is introduced into the creation story. But what is the nature of the choice that Adam and Eve faced in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? This is the part of the creation account that troubles so many people. Because at one level, it looks like God is almost acting sadistically. Placing a tree at the center of the garden with delicious looking fruit and telling Adam and Eve not to eat it. It's like putting a warm chocolate chip cookie right out of the oven in front of a hungry child. And telling her she's going to get a spanking if she touches it or eats it. The other troubling aspect of the story is the fact that eating it would result in gaining the knowledge of good and evil. And that's confusing because isn't that a good thing? Why, why would God want to keep this knowledge from them? And why would he punish them for seeking it out? It seems to confirm our worst suspicions of God who is not completely trustworthy because he doesn't always have our best interest at heart. You know, what's interesting is this. 
in most other instances, when this whole phrase about not knowing good from evil is used in the Bible, it almost always refers to young children who are not of age yet to be able to know right from wrong. And some scholars believe that it wasn't God's intention to keep Adam and Eve away from the knowledge of good and evil forever. That wasn't intended to be an indefinite situation. Remember, this is the moment of the human race in its infancy. And it may, re- may very well have been God's plan to lead them in his own way and in his own timing into this knowledge of distinguishing good and bad. But this is where choice enters the picture. Will they trust God and follow his guidance not to eat from this tree? Or will they take matters into their own hands and decide that they know what is best for themselves? In other words, knowledge gained apart from God on my own terms, based on my wisdom as I see it. This was the fundamental test that Adam and Eve failed in the garden. Genesis 3, 5 to 6 Since for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So this is the choice that Adam and Eve made that day. And I think like Adam and Eve, I think all of us actually overestimate ourselves when it comes to our ability to use knowledge for good rather than evil. And I think the logic is more knowledge is always better than less knowledge, isn't it? And so given a choice between the two, I would always rather have more knowledge. In other words, we inherently trust ourselves that with this greater knowledge, we're capable of making right choices, good choices, for the betterment of ourselves and for the world around us. But I think human history tells a really different story of what humanity has done with knowledge to its utter destruction. You know, the Manhattan Project was the name given to the 1940s research project for developing the world's first nuclear weapon. Many of the physicists who participated in that project confessed how excited and almost giddy they were in developing the science of harnessing nuclear energy and creating a bomb that would be orders of magnitude more destructive than any that has ever existed in human history. And what one of these scientists admitted to was that shortly before they detonated the first atomic bomb, they had this discussion about a possible scenario. It says, quote, There had been some speculation that it might be possible to explode the atmosphere, in which case the world disappears. But even that sobering thought wasn't enough to slow development of the atomic bomb. The experiment continued as planned because they had to know what would happen when the bomb detonated. It was only years later as they reflected on the horror of what they had created 
that many of these physicists began to feel the guilt and the regret of what they had participated in. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the director of the Manhattan Project, after the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, said, the physicists have known sin. The physicists have known sin. But let me give you a more current example from this last decade. You know, Netflix recently released a documentary called The Social Dilemma, which is a wake-up call to the nation to realize the destructive impact that social media is having on us, both as individuals and as a society. And the documentary features these engineers and these business leaders who help to basically architect the online platforms that dominate the internet today, like Google and Facebook and Instagram. And many of these people who basically help to design the internet as we know it today are now sounding an alarm, expressing deep worry for the damage that is being caused by the very tools that they help to create. And what they say is it all seems so innocent in the early days of the internet. Google was just an amazing search engine that had this uncanny ability to find the information that you were looking for. Facebook was a way to connect with old friends from college and share photos with your circle of friends. But at some point, these companies had to figure out how to leverage their massive popularity into profit, into revenue. And during those early days, they tried different business models. They tried to charge a subscription price to get onto their membership and stuff. And none of that worked. No one would pay money for the internet. And so they eventually settled on the advertising model. And this would change everything. The thinking was very simple. Give the product to the users for free and make companies pay for advertising. Most people think that we are the clients of these big companies, like Google and Facebook exist to serve us. But what the architects of the internet tell us is, that's an illusion. You are not the client. The truth is that the advertisers are the real clients because they are the ones paying the huge money to purchase our attention and influence our behavior. As Tristan Harris, former employee at Google, says, if you are not paying for the product, you are the product. And it's easy to be flippant about this and think, so what? If a company wants to pay the bill so that I can use these services for free, better for me, who cares? But what we don't realize is that this advertising model has had an unbelievably powerful impact on shaping our behavior. Not actually through the advertisements themselves, because I think, frankly, for most of us, the second you get a chance, you click skip ad, right? When you're watching the YouTube video and you think, I, I'm unscathed by this. None of that advertising impacts me, but they're laughing all the way to the bank saying, that's not how we're influencing you. Not through the ads at all. What they realize is this. The longer these companies can get you to stay on their websites and use their apps, the more money they make from the advertisers. And so they began to employ everything that we know about the psychology of addiction to get us hooked. 
And that's why about a decade ago when this advertising model began to dominate, we began to see the emergence of new features on the internet, like the comments section, the like button, tagging people in photos, selfie filtering, and the endless scroll. And every one of these features was designed to get you addicted, to stay on the phone longer, your computer longer. And they also discovered this. The more biased, polarizing content that agrees with your point of view that they can throw at you, the longer you stay online and you get hooked into these wormholes of discovery. And so what they said is, we're only going to tell people what they want to hear. And we're just going to reinforce that message of their bias over and over again. Because all these companies care about is money, not how these choices are impacting the public. And so now we live in this incredibly polarized world where each camp has a deep hatred and mistrust of the other side. And new conditions are entering the medical lexicon like Snapchat dysmorphia, where young people are getting plastic surgeries to try to look more like their filtered selfies. In the last decade, anxiety and depression have skyrocketed among our teens. Since 2011, the rate of hospitalization for self-harm has risen 62% among teenage girls and 189% among preteen girls. In the past decade, suicides have risen 70% among teen girls and 151% among preteen girls. And these dramatic increases correlate with the first generation of children that got on social media in middle school. Tristan Harris says, when you look around you, it feels like the world is going crazy. You have to ask yourself, is this normal? Or have we all fallen under some kind of spell? Social media isn't a tool that's just waiting to be used. It has its own goals. And it has its own means of pursuing them by using your psychology against you. You know, until 2018, Google's slogan had proudly been, don't be evil, right? Don't be evil. And yet it was their advertising model that they pioneered, now adopted by every major internet company, that has resulted in these unintended evils that they never could have imagined would take root in our society. Justin Rosenstein, who was co-inventor of the Facebook like button, confessed, when we were making the like button, our entire motivation was, can we spread positivity and love in the world? The idea that fast forward to today and teens would be getting depressed when they don't have enough likes or it could be leading to political polarization was nowhere on our radar. These are just two examples in history of how easily our knowledge can be used for evil, despite even our best intentions to use it for good. And this brings us back to the creation story. The choice that lay before humanity was nothing less than the choice between life and death. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in other words, are intertwined as one in this choice. Eternal life 
as the Bible presents it to us, is more than simply avoiding physical death and living forever. It is about the kind of life, the quality of life that God intended us to experience. You know, the solution to the destructive power of knowledge isn't ignorance. It's not. I'm not trying to say that ignorance is a virtue. But it is to live a life rooted in relationship with God. That's the only safety for us. Choosing life, in other words, is choosing to live in the presence of God. Trusting in his leadership. And living under the protective covering of his will for us. It's about choosing God's wisdom over our own. And trusting him when everything inside us tells us to choose otherwise. God calls us to live a life of obedience. Not because he wants to take away our joy. Or rob us of something good. Or to put heavy burdens around our neck. But because he alone can show us the way. To true, abundant, eternal life. That's why years later, Moses would tell the Israelites when he gave God's commandments to them. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands decrees and laws then you will live and increase and the lord your god will bless you in the land you are entering to possess but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them i declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed you will not live long in the land you are crossing the jordan to enter and possess this day i call the heavens and the earth as witness against you that i have set before you Life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, so that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land. He swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses puts it so starkly. This choice about obeying God or turning your back on him is the choice between life and death for you. In the book of Proverbs, God's wisdom is personified as a woman. And look at how she is described in Proverbs 3, verse 18 and verse 21 to 22, or verse, uh, yeah, 18 and 21 and 22. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. You see, it's only when we understand the meaning of both the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil that we can understand eternal life that was offered to Adam and Eve in the garden, in creation. In other words, the two trees together Offer the choice of life. Eating from the tree of life and not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil go hand in hand as a singular decision of choosing life. When I eat of this tree of life, it also means I turn away from this false tree of life, of my own wisdom, on my terms, and I follow the leadership of God and His wisdom over me 
We cannot have one without the other. Sadly, Adam and Eve chose their own wisdom over God's wisdom, and therefore death over life. And they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, interestingly, they would lose access to the tree of life. In Genesis 3, 24, And he drove the man out and he placed on the east of the garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It's interesting, some Old Testament scholars actually argue that blocking access to the tree of life was an act of God's mercy. After all, what would it have meant for humanity to live forever, eternally, in a state of brokenness and sin apart from God. And yet, just shortening the number of our days, that couldn't be the ultimate solution to the problem of sin and death. Even in that moment when sin entered our world, though God promised a true solution to what had happened. In Genesis 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So what God says in this prophecy is that a seed, a child, would one day come from the woman, and this person would defeat the serpent and undo all of the death and destruction that he incited. And this prophecy would be fulfilled thousands of years later through the coming of Jesus Christ. And through his teaching, he made it clear that he had come to restore the life that was lost in the garden. John chapter 14, verse, 16, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying is that tree of life was a pointing ahead to me. And he pictures himself like a vine that gives life to every branch that is connected to it. In John 15, 5 through 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. What Jesus is describing is that unless you are connected to me, Unless you are a branch connected to this vine, you are like a withering branch that will die. Life is found only if you are connected with me. And Jesus is talking about rescue from physical death and about living forever. But it's also so much more than that. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, by dying on the cross, Jesus not only saved us from physical death in the hope of living for eternity, but when he talked about giving us life, he talked about this abundant life. This is now the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is about living under the leadership and the wisdom of God to say that this eternal life is much more than just living forever but it's living under the benefit of the leadership of God in your life and discovering that his wisdom is always better than your wisdom. Even though in that moment you think you know better than him, even if in that moment you think you know what's best for yourself, true eternal life is about entering into the kingdom life of God, ruling over you 
and leading you into that abundant life. So much of our gut instinct is to seek happiness at the expense of others. To always try to get ahead and to pursue all of our idols. And one of the things that God showed us is that kingdom life is not like that at all. It is about dying to self. And everything in our instinct tell us, tells us, no, no, that is not the way to happiness. And so the same choice is presented before us this day. Choose life or choose death. And that's more than just saying a sinner's prayer so that you know where you'd go when you will die. But it's about what is the life that you're experiencing in this moment, in this life. Do you know this abundant eternal life because of the transforming work of Christ in your life? Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The road to death looks so much more inviting to the human instinct, fallen under sin. The way that God chooses for us so often seems so illogical, so against our nature. And yet what Christ says, this dying to self, this surrender and humility is the only path to real life. I want you to think about what the implications of that are for your love of money, for your struggles in your marriage, for the hopes that you have for your family and for your children. And what are the gut instincts telling you about what you need to do to secure what you so desperately want for your life? And what might the teachings of Christ have to say to that and speak into that about where to truly find abundant life, where you stand today? The great hopes that the Bible gives us that it closes. The very beginning began with the tree of life. And the very last chapter in the Bible closes with the tree of life. And this is the vision that John had in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 to 5. And I'll just close with this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And the, the imagery here is just hard to wrap my mind around. But look at what John says. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be curse, any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What an amazing picture that is of the tree of life straddling this river. So great it is. And the picture is that every month it bears a different kind of fruit. And it's the picture of God's people in this new heavens and earth eating a different fruit every month from this tree of life in the presence of God. And therefore to live forever. 
with him. That is what Jesus Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Let's pray. If I could invite you to think about this theme of the tree of life as we close out our service and get ready to go into the Lord's table and take communion together. If I could just invite you to think in two different ways. Think one is that this COVID crisis has put a lot of fear of death in a lot of us. And I am kind of worried that fear is sort of ruling the day among us now. But when we look at this story of the Bible, the story of the tree of life, um, it is this message that we don't have to fear death, that death cannot touch us because we have eternity with God awaiting us if we are in Christ Jesus. And then if I can actually invite you to reflect in another way is this. Here we have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in essence, what the Bible is saying is these two trees cannot be separated from one another. To have this eternal life means we have to turn our backs on the false gods and the false hopes, the false wisdom. And we need to have the humility to accept the rule of God over our lives. And maybe there's some areas in your life where you're just hitting a wall and hitting a wall and, and you realize, man, left to my own devices and my own wisdom, I don't know how to make this better. I don't know how to get out of this rut. And maybe the prayer is, God, I need that abundant life that you have promised in your word. And the way to that abundance is surrender, absolute surrender to you in your ways, your commandments, your wisdom in my life. And maybe that's a prayer that you need to pray this day. I think as we come to this Lord's table, um, I don't even know if I have to really explain much. It seems like such an obvious way to express what I've just been talking about. To take of this bread and take of this cup. It's just a reminder of this tree of life feeding on Christ and one day feeding on this tree itself in a new garden, in a renewed earth. And that's the hope that each one of us has in Christ Jesus. And so I want to invite you to come to the table and take of this bread that represents the broken body of Christ. And then secondly, to take of the cup of this wine that represents his spilled blood for us. And as we do that, I hope that this imagery of the tree of life would nourish your soul to think apart from God, I am a withering branch, but connected to Christ, I am a flourishing tree that can bear much fruit in my life. And so even as we take of this communion, let's just be reminded of that spiritual truth. Every day I need your spiritual nourishment, God. There is a stubbornness in my heart that wants to walk away from you. There's this pride in me that wants to choose for myself. But even as I come to this table, let it be a reminder to me that I am sustained by Christ and Christ alone. So let's go ahead and first take from the bread and then take the cup. And then our worship team will come and lead us in a time of final response and singing.